Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome, welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Oh, hang on, just realized I forgot to start one place here. There we go. Almost forgot my Twitter feed. There's always one of my, one of my feeds I'm almost forgetting. Okay, excellent. Very good. So, welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, glad I'm able to have quests. Now, let me confess at the beginning, I'm... Uh, I, I this weekend my children afflicted me with yet another cold uh this winter. Uh, this winter has been a good winter for head colds and snow so far up here in New England. Another snow day today. Um but uh uh anyway, I actually lost my voice yesterday and it's mostly back today, which is good and I'm hoping it will persevere throughout class tonight, but uh assuming that works out fine. If it doesn't, I might, there's a chance I might have to call class early tonight. We'll see what happens. But, um, uh, yeah, Tormarth and exactly the Lotro servers seem to have caught whatever I had too. I'm glad they recovered also in time for class. Um, okay. Um, so, uh, Let's move on with things. Just one quick announcement tonight, uh, as we're moving, uh, uh, closer and closer to the holiday season. Well, okay. Two, two announcements. One is just uh, uh, to remember that if you want to give a gift certificate for an anytime audit for any of Signum's courses, we're running a special on those up through Christmas. So uh, we still have another week uh, in which you can purchase a gift certificate for a friend or family member, and they can choose any course out of the Signum catalog uh, to uh, uh, to get all the materials for. So uh, so, oh, yes. And Dorward, thank you for reminding me. Uh, the Mythgard Movie Club's, uh, discussion of the film Solaris is happening on Thursday the 19th. So, uh, that's this Thursday, day after tomorrow. Um, oh, I'm almost forgetting what week it is. Um, and that's happening at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So. Okay. Um, then the last thing I just wanted to mention is that this will be our last session of 2019, uh, because, uh, of just where the holidays fall this year. It's going to be Christmas Eve and then New Year's Eve on the next two Tuesdays. Uh, so we're going to pick up after that. Exactly. Tony, the last exploring the Lord of the Rings of the decade. It's been a good decade. Uh, and, uh, the next time we'll be celebrating our three year anniversary of exploring the Lord of the Rings. So that's pretty cool. Um, anyway. So, uh, those are the announcements today. So let us get on with our discussion, uh, and, uh, we should get into the actual council itself tonight. And I'm especially interested to talk about all the things, uh, that, uh, we don't get to hear about yeah, in the council. So tonight I want to spend a significant amount of time <laughs> talking about what's not there. <laughs> so that'll be, that'll be, that'll be a fun addition. You, you knew this day was coming, right? Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, one, uh, comment from the uh, discussion board though, that I wanted to touch on beach 27 made a really good observation, which I thought I'd share. It's about Boromir's coiffure, of course, which we spent some time discussing. Um, I'd point out that shearing, uh, says Beach 27, in the context of hair has a connotation to me at least of wool or animals generally of rough cutting rather than fancy trimming. That is, I don't think we're supposed to assume Boromir found barbers on the road or that he stopped in with Rivendell's stylist, surely there must be one, before the council. To support this, I'd note that shear derives from the Old English sh sharon, which means specifically that something was cut with a weapon. 
So I conclude that Boromir, having reached his destination, pulled a knife and cut his hair as best he was able. He's accustomed to a certain level of presentation and values it, but he's not a dandy either. I kind of like that, actually. I mean, certainly... He will, I, though we were joking about him finding wanding, wandering barbers in Dunland, uh, it seems very unlikely, uh, that in fact he would have been able to find any kind of barber between, well, at the very least, Metuseld and, um, uh, and Rivendell. So his hair would almost certainly be in a rather untidy state by the time he arrived at Rivendell. However, uh, the idea that he would care enough about presentation, self-presentation, that he wouldn't want to just show up shaggy. So knowing that he was about to arrive or seeing that he was about to arrive, he did his best to, uh, to, to kind of trim his hair. Uh, and, and of course, shoulder length is like, you can reach that with your own dagger, right? So, um, you know, I, I, I think that that, uh, that seems to me very likely. Um, I, I can, I, I think I can get behind that. And also just the fact that, uh, you'll remember that in the, in the description of Boromir, we were getting a lot of, you know, his cloak was rich but weather stained, right? And so the argument here is that the shorn about his shoulders comment is one of the buts, right? It's not evidence of him looking rich. It's one of the, one of the downsides. Like he looks rich and yet he looks, uh, also, like he's been traveling for a long time and, and perhaps not absolutely looking his best. Um, so that, that I can, that I can buy. I certainly, th- it suggests, I don't know. Uh, I, but anyway, I, I can, I can, I can buy that. Um, <laughs> yeah, Oakwig suggests he could, he could blow it dry with the horn. Uh, perhaps if it curls enough, perhaps he could, he could, he could make that work. Um, Okay. Anyway, so I I thought that was a I thought that was a, a nifty comment. Uh, thank you for that, Beach. All right, let us get back to the council. Um, and indeed, this first very first paragraph is the paragraph I wanted to talk about. That is the paragraph which contains, or rather, this paragraph which does not contain all of those things that I wanted to start off discussing. Discussing, not disgusting. Not all that was spoken and debated in the council need now be told. Much was said of events in the world outside, especially in the south, and in the wide lands east of the mountains. Of these things Frodo had already heard many rumors, but the tale of Glowen was new to him, and when the dwarf spoke he listened attentively. It appeared that amid the splendor of their works of hand, the hearts of the dwarves of the Lonely Mountain were troubled. Okay, so we get this little summary, right? That first sentence tells us that lots was said, that is not going to be narrated here. Uh, and in fact, this opening speech that we get from Glowen is, of course, not where the council begins. This is just the first thing that is being narrated to us, and it is being narrated to us because Frodo's actually paying attention to it, unlike the other places, uh, the other things that have also uh, been discussed or described, to which... Um, uh, well, which at least Frodo didn't think significant enough to note down. Um, yeah, Tony wants to know how many hours were skipped over. It sounds like potentially quite a few. Um, notice that he suggests all that was spoken and debated, so that not only uh, were there, you know, accounts of things and, you know, sort of news and updates that were uh, that were given, but actual debates that were held. 
Right. Arden Cran, I was actually thinking about that comment. Arden Cran says it's like Elrond's counselors, important enough to mention, but not in detail. I was thinking of that. Exactly. It seems indeed to be a very similar technique. We're told that several are there, and we're given one by name, right? Um, Aristor, which is sort of uh, kind of stands in for the whole, right? Um, and similarly, Glowen's account here, and it's fairly clear... Uh, why we're told this one, right? Not only because, of course, it's, you know, we know from having read the story before that it's going to have a direct bearing within the next few chapters, uh, but also that it's much more personally relevant to, uh, to Frodo and to Bilbo. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree, Fourth Dauntless, that Bilbo's going to complain about a lack of a lunch break quite a ways down the text, so the missing content can't have taken more than a few hours. Uh, yeah, because we still have several hours of unspoken content yet to come. Uh, I mean, remember, the Council of Elrond is long, but we're still only getting a small fraction uh, of what of everything that was said uh, at the Council. Um but, um, and yes, Mike, I agree with you. This does not even sound like the start of Glowin's tale. Um, I think that that is very possible. Um, uh, anyway, um, but so what is exactly happening here? Well, one thing that I think is fairly clear. Um, Elrond is going to say, and perhaps we'll even get to this passage tonight, Elrond is going to say that this council, this is not, he is not called, he's not summoned the council, right? He has not called everyone here. People have just come. And they've all come to report what's going on, the things that they have heard or the things that they have seen, and to get uh, Elrond's council on that, right? Um, and... That seems to me fairly safe to say because of the text that we're given here. I, 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 I believe based on this technique that we can see Tolkien doing again, Arden Cran coming back to your observation, this tendency to sort of name one thing or draw attention to say that a bunch of things happen and draw attention to one and sort of indicate the sort of the overall pattern, right? I suspect that like Glowen, there were these same sorts of things like, okay, hey, this thing has been going on. Um, a Kierden is Kierden the shipwright has been noticing this and this and this. And so he wanted to, you know, he, so he's come to, to, you know, sent me here, Galdor, uh, he sent Galdor here in order to, uh, uh, you know, seek the council of Elrond, right? Just as Glowen has been sent by Dan for the, for the same sort of purpose. Um, yeah. Um, fourth Dauntless, exactly. Boromir is arriving in order to give a similar well, he's not exactly giving a similar kind of report, but we will uh, hear him give uh, a kind of report like this as well. Um, though, we'll come back to that in a second. Okay, so... The council begins with the people who have come doing their thing, right? I mean, these people have all come with questions to ask or tidings to report. And so the the meeting begins with everybody making their reports and giving their tidings and asking their questions, right? And apparently there's debate, right? Again, there's not just things said, there are things debated uh, in the council. Uh, so there was discussion. Now, much was said in the world of events in the world outside, 
I don't actually understand that phrase. Outside of where? Rivendell? I mean, presumably, right? I wouldn't have assumed that everything they talked about was the stuff that just happened in Rivendell, right? We've all come to discuss the very serious short of shortage of Bannocks at last week's party, right? I mean, seriously. Um, the other, of course, significant usage of the word out. So, so if it's not outside where they currently are, which is the Valley of Rivendell, right? Which would be a little bit silly for them to, to restrict the conversation to that. The other outside, <laughs> JJ says outside the circles of the world, not quite that far outside. Let's try to find a medium there. Um, but I was going to say the other outside is outside the Shire. Of course, right? I mean, think about Gildor and Frodo's conversation, right? Uh, you may, you may fence it out, right? You know, uh, but you can't, uh, you, you may fence yourselves in, but you can't forever fence it out. Um, uh, that's also, uh, that's also, um, a, a, a kind of hobbitish way of thinking about things. Um, the world outside that is outside the Shire. Um, it's possible that it's outside Eriador, but I'm not sure about that. Um, that is, I mean, I'm not saying that I don't think they talked about anything outside Eriador. I just, I'm not sure that that's what outside means because I can't think of any precedent for anybody really referring to Eriador, like thinking about, thinking about Eriador in those terms or discussing it in those terms. Like we're assuming we're talking about Eriador and anything that's not Eriador is outside, right? We've heard people talk about the Shire that way. I can imagine people talking about Rivendell that way. Um, I can't. Imagine them, uh, uh, them, uh, talking like that. Crownless, I agree with you in general that outside, you know, is sort of, it means something like the wider world. Yes, but wider than what? Right? I mean, outside implies a frame of reference. Right? Now, I agree, Edith Aldora, that the elves are pretty isolationist. Yes, that's certainly true. But what they're not, other than those who remain here in Rivendell, is cloistered in a certain place, right? Like, again, you could imagine the elves of Gondolin using that phrase, right? Talking about the world outside, that is outside the Vale of Tumladen, right? Outside their their, their hidden valley. Um, but the elves like Gildor and Glorian wouldn't talk about inside or outside, right? I mean, he's wandering about, as far as we know. Um, so, I am actually... Uh, um, I'm actually inclined to think, um, that, uh, well, I'm inclined, I don't know. I mean, I keep being tempted to say, um, yeah, JJ, I, when I'm asking, when I'm answering that question, who's using the term outside? My answer is the narrator is using the term outside, right? Um, that is to say, the hobbits are using the term outside. Um, and it makes me, uh, it makes me wonder, is this something that is, could somebody do me a favor? One of you who has a copy of The Return of the Shadow, can you look up the first draft of the Council of Elrond material that we get? I know we don't get the whole thing, um, but we get chunks of it. And if the analog of this passage is there in the, f the first time we give it, Christopher probably wouldn't repeat it more than once, but the very first time, 
I'd be interested to see if this sentence or a version of it was there. That would, um, uh, I'd be interested. And the reason I, let me explain the reason why I'm asking that. The conceit that the book is written by, is, you know, narrated by Frodo and Sam, right? Um, with possible assistance from Bilbo is a fairly late conceit. Like the concept of the Red Book of Westmarch was a later concept. Um, it, Tolkien didn't begin there. Um, and, um, there are lots of ways in which we can play the who is the narrator game anyway, and I'm not bothered about that, but that if the word outside, if, if in the world outside is meant to be Shire reference, which it still, it sounds to me most like, um, then, uh, because exactly belongs Mond, exactly. The intended audience of the Red Book of Westmarch are hobbits in the Shire, right? So if you are a hobbit audience, that sentence would make perfect sense to you. Much was said of events in the world outside, right? Not all of it. There are some things that are going to be said about the world inside, right? Namely Bilbo's story and Frodo's story later on. But most of this early stuff was, uh, uh, was, they were discussing events in the world outside, right? That is to say, outside the Shire, which would make sense. Um, uh, but, um, but as I say, that was, he was not writing, I don't see any evidence that he was writing with that conception in mind at the very beginning. Uh, so I'd be interested to see, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, especially in the South and in the wide lands East of the mountains, um, naturally, right? There's not much happening in the North and to the West of here. I mean, Way to the west is something pretty important, but to the west of here is generally, you know, the Shire and then, you know, the marches to the sea. And that, again, not the source of much in the way of current events, right? Pretty much anything that's interesting to the council is happening south and east. So that's not extremely um, helpful. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um Yeah. It is possible, Mudmore, as you were saying, it is possible that the world outside is meant to mean uh, just in contrast with them inside the valley, right? Not in the sense of like, okay, having discussed Rivendell events, let's now move on to the less important things happening outside, but rather, um, here we are. Here, here we are. We are all inside. We are all here safe and inside. But while we are all gathered here safe inside Rivendell, we are going to discuss the world outside the valley. Um, that, um, that seems to me possible. Um, that the, the, the point of that passage is to just kind of emphasize how they are gathered and sheltered in safety in order to discuss all of these things. I can, I can see that, 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 that makes sense. Um, uh, tell me, uh, anybody who can find, if anyone can find the passage in the return of the shadow, uh, I would be interested to see if that phrase or anything like it is there. Okay. Um, and Tony, I do agree that it's important that they're discussing current events in this passage. 
we get very little. Um, we only get the one piece of current events, uh, before, uh, things turn to the past, right? Um, yeah, Edith, yeah, I, I, that my memory of it was that the Council of Elrond bits are pretty fragmented. Um, and yeah, the fact that we, if it's not there, that doesn't prove that it's not there. It's kind of challenging in that way, but, um, yeah, Lalith, this is an excellent question. I don't know what the unnamed news from the East is that isn't connected with Glowin's tale. So, um, or from the South that's not connected to Boromir's tale, right? Boromir is not called upon. Now we have to be careful, right? Because much was spoken and debated. Um, does this mean that Boromir has said nothing until he, he's going to speak up? right before too long um but uh does it mean that he's not contributed at all contributed at all to the discussions now when he does talk he's going to talk as if he's introducing himself and saying an open I mean, like it doesn't sound like he's already been participating in that discussion for hours already um uh so my suspicion is that Boromir has not was is not really a, a central contributor to this discussion and that news uh, events in the world outside, especially in the South, does not presumably mean Gondor. What would it mean then? What would they be talking about? The wide lands east of the mountains, there's much to talk about there. I mean, of course, we immediately think about Erebor, but um, there's more, right? There's more out there. Um horse stealing in Rohan, right? There would, there would be some unrest in Rohan. Um, Mirkwood, right. What's going on in Mirkwood? Uh, we were told some snippets of this by Gandalf back in chapter two, right? Which remember a lot of people wouldn't have heard that kind of thing. This is going to come up a lot in this chapter, but we have to keep in mind. Um, this is something that I think is, a, and I, you've, many of you will have heard me allude to this or talk about this on many occasions, I think a very, very common mistake that a lot of readers of The Lord of the Rings make is to forget the difference, the differences in the dissemination of information in not only the pre-internet, but the pre-print world, right? Um, the stuff that Frodo told, the Frodo learned from Gandalf, right? Even though that was months ago, is stuff which is very unlikely to have spread to most of the other folks that are there at the council. Indeed, things that were known years ago were are unlikely to have... I mean, there are still many people who would not have uh, uh, spread that far. Tony, yeah, they may be talking about the refugees coming up from the south. Uh, that seems very likely. Um, they will be talking about... They're probably talking about the uh, the conditions in Mirkwood. Right. Um, we're told that the, you know, the shadow was darkening again in Mirkwood. Gandalf mentioned something about that back in chapter two. Um, so we'd probably have an update. We've been told about Legolas. So he probably would, uh, be talking about that. I've seen no reason to think that Legolas isn't giving some reports about Mirkwood and how things are going there with the, the shadow and the darkness and the spiders and that kind of thing. Um, we've, we are going to hear in Glowin's uh, in Glowen's talk about the men who ha are under the allegiance of Sauron, it's very likely that we would hear about that. The reference to the wide lands east of the mountains suggests to me perhaps the lands beyond Mirkwood, right? Mirkwood is 
wide. Um, but the wide lands sounds, doesn't that sound to you like he's talking about big open country, not just the forest? Um, and so I think he's probably talking about the land off to the east, uh, there, which is full of men who are under the allegiance of Sauron and from whom attack might come. So what is, what is the latest that we know from there, right? What is going on? How real, how imminent, uh, is a threat of invasion from the east up there? There are also the Bjornings and what's going on with them. And, uh, can, you know, the, if the, you know, so if the, uh, you know, there is an invasion of men from the east up there, which of course it turns out there's going to be more than one, right? Um, Invasion that is up in the north. There's going to be there's going to be fighting in Mirkwood, and there's going to be fighting up in Erebor, right? So we know there's plenty of opportunity for invasion. Dol Guldur, what's going on in Dol Guldur, right? The Bjornings, right? That you know those uh, the Bjornings, which is remember not just like a family of people who can turn themselves into bears, uh, but the Bjornings in the text. Remember those woodmen. Right. Those woodmen who were those brave men who were carving out uh, homesteads for themselves on the western uh, edge of Mirkwood in that space between Mirkwood uh, and the mountains there. Um, those are the people over whom Bjorn became chief. And so that sort of nation of men related to the Bardings of Dale um, are uh, the Bjornings uh, that are referred to there. Um, so. Anyway, there's, uh, uh, there's lots of, uh, things going on there. Arden Crown, it is possible that there have been some word from the Eagles. It's possible that either that, I mean, remember Gandalf, um, has recently been in contact with the Lord of the Eagles, so he might have something to contribute there about what's going on there. Um, uh, is everyone aware of the Nazgul, Tony? No. No. Uh, the nine are not part. I cannot imagine that the nine are part of the discussion, not in this early part, um, because they've not been involved, uh, in these things. Um, yeah. So, um, so right. So, and then in the South, we do have those refugees coming up from the South, coming up into Bree, right? Uh, that's, that's already been a, uh, a, 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 you know, a thing that has, we've already encountered. Where are they coming from? Right. Uh, where are they fleeing from? What's going on, uh, down in the south? Um, something is happening, right? What's happening down in Dunland? I think that's got to be a topic of discussion or at least of speculation. Is there anybody in the council who knows, right? Boromir has traveled through there, but what does he know, right? Um, I mean, unless he happened to see something, he's, uh, um, he's just traveled through, right? So, um, yeah, Fort Dauntless, yes, Strider was recently on a long journey of several months. He, of everyone at the council, would probably know most about what was going on there south, you know, in that, in the wilds south of Bree, right down, uh, into Enidwyth and Dunland. Um, and there were also the tidings brought in by the sons of Elrond the night before, who also may have been doing some traveling in that area. So some discussion of how safe the area is. I mean, when you've got a bunch of refugees coming up from the south, that means they're probably fleeing from something. What? Are there advancing armies moving up from the south? Um, that would be no new thing, 
right? You've got it. Remember that Rivendell was once besieged by armies of Sauron, which marched up through the Gap of Rohan and came up from the south through Eriador, burning as they came. So that's got to be a concern, right? And something that would be particularly relevant and well within the living memory of many of the folks there at the council. So, um, you know, when you hear that there are a bunch of refugees coming up from the south, bunches of people, Gandalf and Boromir, could all testify that things aren't so bad in Rohan is all that, right? There's no ravening horde that has made it through the, um, the mouth of, uh, the, you know, the, 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 uh, gap of Rohan yet. Um, but still, like, there's something happening. What is it that's happening? Um, uh, so, uh, anyway, all of this stuff, there's plenty there, right, for them to be discussing. And then any, who knows what news Kierden the Shipwright might have, right? He sent Galdor, presumably, and we are told, or we're going to be told, uh, that he wasn't summoned by Elrond. You know, Elrond didn't, you know, text Kierden and be like, hey, having a meeting, send somebody. That didn't happen, right? So Galdor is there for a reason, too. What's been happening out to the west, out towards the sea? Did Kierden see something, right? Did his elves sailing on the coast? Um... Uh, there is probably some communication. There was, there were, el- there are elf havens down in the south as well as up in the north. Um, has something been seen along the coastline that they're uncertain about? I'm not sure, right? Um, yeah, JJ, you're right. Within living memory has a much different meaning, uh, when you're talking, uh, about a crowd that contains elves. Absolutely. Um, Fourth Dauntless, it seems entirely possible that Kyrdan has heard some news about the Corsairs of Umbar. Um, that seems very possible. I'm not sure I'd call it likely, but possible, right? Um, I do think that it's possible. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, there's, um, there's a lot to discuss. There are a few things that we can be fairly confident they weren't talking about in this early section. They almost certainly weren't talking about the Nazgul, because we'll get to that later, and it will still be kind of a surprise when we do. And they certainly weren't talking about um, Saruman and Isengard, right? Um, that is, they're certainly not talking about armies massing in Isengard and preparing to come north. Um, they won't yet know what the source of the... Um, uh, of the trouble in the South is, but they certainly will not yet, do not yet understand or suspect that Saruman is the source of it. Um, and of course, as you say, Tony, they're not talking about the rings yet. So I think there's a lot of potential things for them to be, uh, for them to be discussing and thinking about like what they should do. That is, should they send word that, um, remember all of these, like the defense of the free peoples and the fighting off the, the, the armies, the bad guys armies are all more coordinated, coordinated in the sense that they're all taking their orders from one place, right? Sauron is in charge or at least they believe he is of all of these armies, right? Again, they don't know about Saruman. Um, but nobody's coordinating the good guys, right? Um, are the, do the Bjornings even know what's going on, right? And wh- what are they going to do when they're made to to know what's going on? Um, can anybody help the elves of Mirkwood with the Dol Guldur problem? And what's going to happen there? Um, uh, anyway, there's um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things for them to think about 
and to wonder about and try to figure and even for them to do. So again, so the debate, <clears throat> do they send messages? And if so, what do the messages say exactly? Um, you know, how are they going to try to coordinate and what exactly needs coordination? Um, so, um, Tony's asking, how much are people aware of the return of Sauron to Mordor? That, I think, is pretty generally known. Uh, I, I say that because, remember, word of that came even to the Shire. Frodo heard about that and not from Gandalf. Um, Frodo had already heard that Sauron had returned to Mordor. Um, so that's old news. It's like, uh, decades old news at this point. And so I think we can be fairly confident that everybody knows that Sauron, ha most everybody will know by now that Sauron has returned to Mordor. Um, notice how it immediately says that of these things, Frodo had already heard many rumors, right? Remember, this is the kind of news that Frodo was always seeking out during that 17-year gap after Bilbo left, uh, and he kept talking to anybody who had been outside the borders of the Shire or was passing through the Shire in order to get news of the outside world's world, right? Rococo, exactly. Once it's reached the Shire, everyone knows. That's precisely my conclusion, too. If even Frodo at Bag End heard it, independent of Gandalf, everybody everybody knows. Um, Angrist, you're right, Ted Sandyman probably, or Sandyman probably won't believe it, but nevertheless, uh, everybody knows. Um, yeah, so, um, exactly, JJ, uh, the whole point about returning to Mordor is that he declares himself Openly. Um, Arden Crayon asks, did Sauron hoist a big skull and bones flag over the Black Tower when he returned? Uh, yeah, no, he's like, had this really impressive big metal switch that he turned on and it lit up the eye up at the top. I'm kidding. Um, but, uh, exactly, Trifle. He fired up Mount Doom. The, 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 the volcano became active again. That was the first tip off. But remember, Sauron has lots of motivation to start, uh, some PR campaigns about this, right? Uh, you know, the messaging out of Mordor, right? Sauron's back and better than ever. There's a good reason for this is because there's lots and lots and lots of people who owe allegiance to him. And so he wants to make, he's, so he's getting them in order. So he's been spending decades, um, patching things up politically, right? Firming up political connections with all his peeps, right? Cause he's got peeps all over the East, North and South. Um, so, so yeah, he, he's had some pretty good reason to make it generally known, uh, that he, Sauron was back and he doesn't care if everybody else knows, right? Um, everybody else knowing like his, the truth of who he is and that he has returned. Um, he wanted to, he wanted to, um, keep that a secret while he was at Dol Guldur because he wasn't ready yet, right? Now he's ready. Now he has returned to strength and he's, he's, he's ready to move things into the next gear. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. And exactly, WKU, exactly that. It's spiritual warfare. He wants the people to experience fear. Exactly. He doesn't care. Not only does he not care if everybody else knows, he wants them to know because he wants them to fear him. He wants them to tremble. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah. Um, the light says, in that case, it seems like they are avoiding an oliphant in the room, uh, but without any other definitive events named other than a general understanding of his return, does that avoidance make sense until they're ready to hear more from Gandalf? Well, we're not told explicitly uh, of whether or not they mentioned Sauron here. Um, I uh, I suspect that they have, actually, and the primary reason that I expect that they have um, mentioned it is uh, that Glowind... Remember, Glowind's tale is like our representative sample of the discussions and news given during this portion of the council that's not being narrated, and he mentions it, right? Um, so I would suspect um, that, that's, uh, that that's what's what's happening. So, oh, hey, and Finwin, I see, is uh, attending live for the first time since catching up. Congratulations. Uh, uh, very good. Glad uh, you could join us today. It's always a big feat when someone manages to catch up completely. That's very good. Um, okay. <laughs> yes. Tormarthen says, and Finwin, you can sit next to Boromir. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. Great. So, let's go on to the tale of Glowin, then. It is now many years ago, said Glowin, that a shadow of disquiet fell upon our people. Whence it came, we did not at first perceive. Words began to be whispered in secret. It was said that we were hemmed in a narrow place, and that greater wealth and splendor would be found in a wider world. Some spoke of Moria. The mighty works of our fathers that are called in our own tongue Khazad-dum. And they declared that now at last we had the power and numbers to return. Glowin sighed. Moria, Moria, wonder of the northern world. Too deep we delved there and woke the nameless fear. Long have its vast mansions lain empty since the children of Durin fled. But now we spoke of, spoke of it again with longing and yet with dread. For no dwarf has dared to pass the doors of Khazad-dûm for many lives of kings, save Thror only, and he perished. At last, however, Balin listened to the whispers and resolved to go. And though Dan did not give leave willingly, he took with him Ori and Owen and many of our folk, and they went away south. Okay. Um... Yes, Tony, that was going to be my first question. This shadow of disquiet that comes across the dwarves. Do you think this was organic? Do, is this a plot of the enemy or not? See, the challenge that I have here, there are two things that make me suspicious about this shadow of disquiet. One is, as I have hinted in my subtitle here for this slide, which I called the unrest of the Longbeards. Um, it just, it makes me think a lot about the Noldor in, uh, in, uh, Valinor, right? Um, secondly, um, the whispers, right? Now words began to be whispered in secret on the one hand, like, it's just people whispering to each other, right? Um, Lincoln, the Numenorians, sure, yeah. I mean, it does seem to be parallel to both of those times, and Sauron was uh, involved 
right? Well, Sauron wasn't directly involved. It was Melkor the first time, Sauron the second time. But anyway, I mean, it's it's. I don't. We've not seen that kind of unrest grow totally spontaneously. Now it did in Numenor. There was unrest there before Sauron even arrived. I understand that. Um, but again, it just. I don't know. Um, the first time he said, talks about the whispers, words began to be whispered in secret. It was said that we were hemmed in a narrow place and that greater wealth and splendor would be found in a wider world. Doesn't that sound just like the kind of thing that Morgoth said to the Noldor, right? And in exactly the same way that whispers began to circulate about them, and many of them had their sources in Melkor, but... Most people didn't even know that. Even the people who were repeating the whispers didn't even know that, right? Um, and then when it's brought up the last time, at last, however, Balin listened to the whispers and resolved to go. Listened to the whispers, right? As if they were so, like some external thing, right? Um, uh, <clears throat> good. Uh, Evil Dr. Cannon, it was said that we were hemmed in a narrow place. Evil Dr. Cannon says it was said by whom, right? Yeah. Notice the way the, um, the way that like responsibility for this is dispersed, right? Who said that, right? Where does that idea come from? Um, it's very passive voice. And that's a pretty suspicious passive voice to me, Gilgonthir, right? Where does that come from? Seriously, people were just kind of spontaneously feeling this. And this is where it begins to feel different from the Numenorians, right? When the Numenorians begin to feel uneasy about death, it's a little clearer, right? I mean, this is, this is how that could organically arise within them is not only understandable, it's told, right? Um, how they are so sort of satisfied with their lives and they're enjoying their bliss, but they increasingly begin to grudge having to leave it, right? Uh, it, again, it, we, nobody has to start those kind of rumors. We're told what the the sort of problem in their society was that led people to whisper those things, right? Um, and... Um, uh, but this doesn't sound that way. In fact, remember, notice the way that it's contextualized at the end of that first paragraph. It appeared that amid the splendor of their works of hand, the hearts of the dwarves of the lonely mountain were troubled. Right? Notice the contrast there. And what are they troubled about? Disquiet, the shadow of disquiet, which is that they were hemmed in a narrow place and greater wealth and splendor would be found in a wider world. In other words, it's not... They're not being corrupted by what they have. It's the opposite, right? They have built these splendid works of hand, these things that Glowen was going on and on about at dinner with Frodo, right? And they... It wasn't enough, right? They just wanted more. So there they are amidst the splendor of their works of hand and being like... Uh, well, you know, same old place, right? Um, yeah. Ooh, good. Uh, Tim is saying we've got the, the shadows of disquiet. Uh, whence it came, we did not at first perceive. Really good. I hadn't noticed that at first, 
right? Now, he doesn't say where later on, you know, at second, they perceived that it came from, right? But it does suggest that the source of those whispers perhaps later on became clear, right? Um, yeah. More and more, this does sound like a temptation, not organic disquiet, right? Um, not just a, an internal problem among the dwarves, um, but really a that agents of Sauron are here spreading this disquiet among them. <clears throat> Tony says this is probably how Sauron ensnared the dwarves with the rings before. Uh, that's very possible. It's very possible. Um, some spoke of Moria. The mighty works of our fathers that are called in our own tongue Hazadum. And they declared that now at last we had the power in numbers to return. <clears throat> Here's the thing. One of the things I find most striking about this whole portion of Glowin's speech. Moria. Moria. Wonder of the northern world. What's his tone there? How do you read that? Moria, Moria, wonder of the northern world. I think there's a cue here. Why does he call it Moria? It can't be because he doesn't want to say the dwarvish name because of being secretive. Because he's just said it. <clears throat> to its fire, exactly. <clears throat> Moria is not their name for it. Exactly, Mad Violinist. Moria means the Black Pit. It was the name the elves gave to it post-Balrog. Um, and Moria is what it is now. But that's why I think it's not necessarily pure wistfulness. Um, and you're right, yeah, Luke is also saying Casa Doom isn't what it is now. I agree. But if you're being wistful, what, see, it's, 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 if he just said, Moria, Moria, too deep we delved there and woke the nameless fear. That would be one thing, right? But he says, Moria, Moria, wonder of the northern world. Moria was never the wonder of the northern world, other than, like, the horror of the northern world, right? Chazad Doom may well have been the wonder of the northern world, especially from a dwarvish perspective, right? Um, too deep we delved there and woke the nameless fear. Here's what I'm suggesting. Do I think there's wistfulness involved here? Absolutely, I think there's some involved, but I'm not convinced that that's the only tone here. Remember the context, especially if in that second paragraph we are understanding him correctly, that he is suggesting that there were and that this was an actual temptation, that agents of the enemy were among them spreading whispers and unrest to evil purpose. And the ultimate focus of those whispers and that evil purpose, the fruit born by those whispers that were spread around their people, was this desire to return to Moria. Some spoke of Moria, right? That seems to be an idea that was planted within the whispers, right? Um, some spoke of Moria. 
the mighty works of our fathers that are called in our own tongue Hazadum, and they declared that now at last we had the power and numbers to return. If he segues from that to pure wistfulness, he himself is like advocating what just what happened, right? <clears throat> Some spoke of Moria, you know, Hazadum, and that now at last we had the powers and numbers to return. Moria, Moria, wonder of the northern world. I don't think so. I think that Glowen, his sigh at the beginning, I think is not just a wistful sigh. He is wistful for Khazad-dum, but I think he also knows this was the temp, that was the trap. That was the temptation. Yes, it's regret. Regret not just for Khazad-dum that's been lost, right? But for this trap that was sprung on his people with with such a bait, right? He knows Khazad-dum, if he suspected before, and it sounds like, well, at least he's making it sound like he might have suspected it before. At least he didn't go, right? So <clears throat> he was at least that resistant to it. Um, but he recognizes that was the bait that was put in this trap. And Balin... Um, fell into the trap, right? And woke the nameless fear. Mudmore, yes, it is nameless. Nobody has any idea. Um, nobody has any idea. Okay, some people have theories it's going to turn out, but the dwarves have no idea what that was. Um, uh, yes, exactly. His own brother. Remember, Owen is his brother. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, Anyway, right, so the dwarves do not know that it was about... They, they, The nameless fear is all they know. There was something that got woken up. It was terrifying. It was horrible. It destroyed a whole bunch of us, and we had to run away, right? That's all. That's literally all that they know. Um, the fact that it was a Balrog of Morgoth is going to be a revelation, right? Um, when they discover the truth of that, when the company discovers the truth of that, at the bridge, it is going to be a news for Gandalf has no idea. Gandalf has no idea. He's going to meet it and still have no idea. Um, the first time he meets the Balrog twice. You remember, of course. Um, and it's only the second time that he knows what it is anyway. Um, Yeah. Good. Now, Trifle says, I wonder when Glowen started thinking it was a trap, when it was happening or when the messenger of Mordor repeats it almost verbatim. <coughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Angrist, you're right. Who would know or suspect a Balrog, right? Yeah, that would be um, a really unlikely guess. Um, really, really unlikely. Um Okay, yeah, I'm doing mostly okay, Druid's Fire. I think I'm starting to wane a little bit, but I, I think I can still do it. Um, okay, anyway. So, my point is, Glow and Sigh, I think, is more complicated. Uh, I always was tempted before, because I never really stopped and, uh, thought really carefully about those whispers in the second, second paragraph there. Um, I always thought that Glowen was simply being wistful, right? 
that this was a like, oh yeah, man, Kaza Doom is really the best. Like, I totally feel it. Like, I, of course, Balin went, like, I can understand. There's an element of that. But again, to him, that's what would be the tragedy, right? He would be conscious of that kind of tragedy, right? I mean, naturally, of course, in the end, some of them went. Who could resist? What dwarf could forever resist that temptation uh, when that temptation is the one that's being put in front of them? Um, I have another suspicion, too. My suspicion is that if it's a temptation, like if this is an actual plot by Sauron, which I suspect it to be, um, Moria was plan B. I don't think it was plan A. I think it was plan B. Notice the whispers. When Glowen describes the whispers, he first says is that they were hemmed in a narrow place and greater wealth and splendor would be found in a wider world. Right? So the impulse number one is this place is too parochial. Let's go out and find more stuff, right? More wealth and splendor will be found in a wider world. Um, my suspicion is that that one didn't really take root. Unrest happened, right? A disquiet occurred, but they weren't going to go pack up and leave Erebor just because they were kind of thinking like, hey, maybe there are other mountains elsewhere, which would also be awesome, right? That didn't tempt them. But Moria. Some spoke of Moria. Oh, right. Okay. So that, like, plan B or something, right? When that came around, what about Moria? Okay. Now some of them actually go, right? Um, yeah. The light says it's almost too perfect a trap for it not to be a plot by Sauron. Get them in the open, trap them in Moria, weakening Erebor. And that certainly seems to be the purpose of it, right? We know that as it is going to happen, because the dwarves of Erebor are there, the northern army that Sauron is planning to bring through is going to get thwarted. Were the dwarves of Erebor gone? Had they heeded this? Right? Had they been scattered? Um, had they all migrated back to Moria? Had Dan listened to the whispers and said, you know what? We look at the glory of the dwarves of Erebor now. We have finally, we, the Longbeards are able to re- let us reclaim our ancestral home. Let us go back to Moria. Right. Had he started a mass migration back to Moria, um, certainly the men of Dale alone would not have been able to oppose the army that Sauron is going to bring in. Right. Um, yeah. Exactly. Divide and divide and conquer. Yeah, absolutely. As Tony says, it's no accident that the goblins invaded Moria not long after they occupied it. Um, yes, yes. Um, and Lilith, absolutely. Sauron might have attacked them on the road when they were when they were wandering. Right. When they were when they were migrating over there. Um, yes, very, very, very possible. Um, so. Uh, more. Let's see. There was something else I was going to say. Oh, yeah. Um. No, wait. I forgot it again. Darn it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the only thing, other thing I was, I was going to say was, remember, we know that, um, 
Gandalf is going to say later that Sauron's plan had been to use the dragon, right? So he had plans like that. That northern passage, right, was always part of Sauron's plans, um, and he's still definitely, definitely thinking about this. Um, so the question. Um, let's see, uh, Sarah says, uh, Vermont Hobbit, does the outcome for the dwarves, whether they go to Moria, uh, have to be the important part for Sauron? Couldn't it just be for negotiation with an already prosperous people? Possibly. He could be trying to corrupt them to his service. That is possible. Um, but I think, uh, better, um, uh, better is that, uh, better would be to get them out of the way. Um, it's possible that he could corrupt them. Remember, we are told that there were dwarves fighting on the side of Sauron at the Battle of the Last Alliance. We were told that there are representatives of all of the races on both sides of that battle, except for elves. There were no elves fighting on the side of Sauron uh, in the War of the Last Alliance, but everybody else, including dwarves, right? So there were some dwarves. They did resist the original rings, but that doesn't mean that they're above political maneuvering, right? Or uh, they, 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 they are resistant to spiritual enslavement by something like the ring, but that doesn't mean that they're resistant to corruption of any kind. That doesn't mean that they're resistant to politics, right? Um, does that mean there were good orcs? <clears throat> no, not them. They don't count. Orcs never count. I'm sorry. Um, yep. Yep. Um, okay. Oh, I remember the other thing I was going to say, and I think a couple of you were just remembering it too. Um, the other thing I was going to say is, notice that one of the things, one of the things that was thwarting, I think, this plot, um, is who the king is. Almost any other king might have been successfully corrupted by this, right? Um, imagine if Thran were still alive, right? Now, he would be really old by now, but still. Um, but, but it's Dan. Dan is the king in Erebor. And exactly, Dan is the only one of them who has looked into Moria. He has seen through the doors of Moria, uh, and seen or felt the shadow that was there, right? He is the only one who knows, doesn't just suspect, hasn't just heard rumors, right? But who knows death waits for the dwarves, uh, still in Moria. Um, so Dan is not going to be ordering any mass migrations to, uh, to Moria. So it is, uh, very fortunate for the dwarves, that Dan happens to be their king. Um, Lilith, he doesn't know about the orcs, right? But honestly, I think if Balin has convinced himself that Moria is still completely orc-free, I mean, lots and lots of orcs were killed at the Battle of Azanulbazar, but that was a long time ago now. Um, uh, that was a significant amount. I mean, that was before The Hobbit. It was like, what, a hundred years ago? More than a hundred years ago now? Um, so anybody who thinks there's a zero percent chance that any single orc family has moved into Casa Doom in the meantime, um, 
and more uh, orcs were killed in the Battle of Five Armies to almost 200 years. That's what I thought. It's been a long time. But anyway, there's been plenty of time for the orcs to repopulate and for other more orcs to move in. And even Gandalf again told the Frodo at the beginning that, that it was pretty clear that the orcs of the Misty Mountains had recovered their numbers uh, since the Battle of Five Armies. Um, so anyway, that's... um. Uh, I think it's very, very unlikely that anyone would really. So if Balin thinks that, um, he can get back there, he can make good. It's because I think, I guess he must believe that he can overcome the orcs that are there, um, or that they must still be few enough for the dwarves to be able to overcome. That seems to me the only way, but that's got to be wishful thinking on Balin's part and others, I'm sure would, uh, would see through that. Um, and yes, of course, De- uh, Dan did not know that it was a Balrog. Balin wouldn't know that it was a Balrog. Um, but again, I think that what we're seeing, what we're hearing about here is not that the dwarves were like active, that the consequence of listening to whispers like this, whisper, especially if they are whispers put about with malice, especially, especially if they are whispers that are being put about through the, uh, um, through the malicious, the act of the malicious will of the enemy. Um, they are likely to lead to things like unrealistic wishful thinking, right? Rationalizations. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Balin convinces himself that it's going to be okay. Now at last we have the power and numbers to return. You can talk yourself into that, especially if you want it enough, right? Um, yeah. Now, I saw a couple of you asking before, if these whispers were spread among the dwarves by servants of Sauron, how? How, um, how were they... How is that accomplished? Well, I don't know for sure, but there is precedent. <clears throat> there is precedent for shape-changing persons going among folks. And like so that that somebody could have taken the form of one of the dwarves and gone about starting these whispers is that's happened before there's there's precedent for that uh shape changing is a thing um it is also possible mad violinists since they do interact with dale a lot it doesn't have to be some they, it doesn't have to be from a dwarf that these whispers begin right all you need is a few dwarves who tend to hang out at pubs in dale right who can talk with humans, you know, coming through who are indeed agents of Sauron, who start them thinking and talking, uh, in that way, right? Worm tongues may be found in other places than Aderas, mad violinist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, exactly. Evil Dr. Cannon. Sauron is the master of phantoms. He has created images and false personages before. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I think that any one of these, um, uh, are possible. Um, uh, yeah, you just need one deceiver, 
right? One worm tongue ish person, right? Uh, who is hanging out in Dale as his base, you know, a man, um, who first pumps up the dwarves with talk about how great and powerful they are and how splendid they've become and, um, how much more they could accomplish elsewhere. And you just got to plant the seeds, right? Um, and especially if there's some power behind that, if there's some of Sauron's power behind that, as there was clearly power behind Wormtongue's words, more than just persuasiveness. We'll get to that later on, but, um, but yeah, I, I think it's, could the mechanics of that work? I don't, I don't see any problem with the mechanics of that working. I wouldn't even rule out, as I say, a shape changer who took the form of a dwarf and went into Erebor to do this, but I do agree it would be even simpler for it to happen in Dale. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and Gilgonther says, do you even need deception or just someone who asks a few questions? Hey, what about Moria? Um, yeah, again, it's a, it's an excellent bait for the trap, right? Uh, so excellent that Balin and Ori and Owen all fall into it. Absolutely. Um, yes, yes. Um, Yep, Mithril alone would be a strong incentive if they were preparing for war. Angrist, absolutely. I mean, there are so many different kinds of, uh, so many different kinds of, uh, rationalizations, right? Uh, perfectly good reasons to do this that would come to mind. Absolutely. Um, Yes, JJ, I do agree. Uh, JJ says, does anyone else find it more tragic that it was Balin than if it had been pretty much anyone else? Absolutely. Balin, who was oldest of all of them, who has seen more than any of the other dwarves. He was there at the Battle of Azanul Bazaar. He was, uh, of course, with Thorin Oakenshield to the end. He was traveling with Thran when Thran was taken prisoner. Balin's been to it all, right? He's been everywhere. Um... And the one who was closest to Bilbo, right? The one who visited him in the Shire, the one who was always here. I will never forget, you know, it, to me, like Balin's epitaph in my mind, right, will always be that awesome moment when he volunteered to go down uh, with Bilbo down the tunnel, right? At least partway down the tunnel. He was the only one who was willing to volunteer to go with him. And then when Bilbo comes back with the cup, he picks Bilbo up and carries him, you know, and runs with him, carrying him and the cup with him, right? Up the, up the tunnel. That's the, that's the moment I always remember when I remember Balin. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he's, uh, was like obviously the best and coolest of all of the uh of all of the dwarves um and um yeah i i i do think he is also a very natural leader for such an expedition right but it does make it more tragic i think not only in the sense that it's balin who falls Right. But more tragic in the sense that would the others have gone without him if he hadn't fallen to this temptation? Would the expedition have happened at all? I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't. Right. I mean, he is a very senior, very natural leader. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, Dory was also a, a, a decent fellow. Yes, yes. Dory is this is my second favorite uh, of the duo. Well, Fiwi and Kiwi are pretty cool too, uh, but uh, Dory is uh, um, Dory's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, Tony, I agree. Bowen probably is the oldest of all of the the House of Durin. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> yep. Okay. Dan did not give leave willingly. Think about that sentence. At last, however, Balin listened to the whispers and resolved to go. And though Dan did not give leave willingly, he took with him Ori and Owen and many of our folk, and they went away south. It's a very understated sentence. Tony, I think that's what it means. I think it means that Dan does give leave. Unwillingly. Right? So he gives uncheerful leave. Right? He grudgingly gives leave to Balin to go. I don't think that Balin and the rest of them left like thieves in the night, sneaking out um, because Dan had forbidden them to do so. But um Yeah, I agree with the several of you who are saying it would probably not uh do much for the unrest for Dan to forbid them to go. Um Yeah. Yeah, but I just noticed the the phrasing there. Exactly. Cecilia was just saying the same thing. Um He knew the whispers would get louder if he didn't give them leave. Um <clears throat> Balin listened to the whispers and resolved to go. And though Dan did not give leave willingly, he took with him Ori and Owen and many of our folk, and they went away south. Balin listened, he resolved, and he took with him Ori and Owen. Um. Yeah. And I don't know how many is many, Tony. Um. <clears throat> but this does not sound like a small expedition. This sounds like a chunk of the population, not just... This doesn't sound like, you know... I don't know. You know, 25 strapping young pioneers. That doesn't sound like what's going on here. Um, Recolonizing, I do think, is what's happening here. Did they bring women and children with them? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. This is not 13 dwarves on an adventure. No, it is not. Um, Fourth Dauntless, that's one of the things that I've, I've been wrestling with here. That he took with him Ori and Owen is the phrase that's been kind of, uh, I've been kind of stuck on there. Fort Thalos was just saying it sounds like they went because they felt obligated to Balin rather than, rather than out of their own desire. Um, possibly. Yeah, Tony, I would guess that too. Less than half, but significant. My guess is that it might have been somewhere up to, if I had to, if I had to guess, I would have guessed that Balin took with him up to, but probably not exceeding 25% of the population of Erebor. A significant chunk. Maybe not that many. Maybe only 10%. Um, but, a, a 
a noticeable percentage of the population, not just a crew. Um, JJ thinks a third, maybe, maybe. Um, interesting. Mike says that, uh, it sounds like Glowen thought it was a bad idea, so he might be deflecting the blame, uh, even subconsciously, uh, off his own brother and onto Balin. Possibly. Possibly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that is possible. I kind of like that as sort of a psychological explanation for that phrasing. He took with him Ori and Owen. Um, it just seems to me much more naturally for him to say, you know, and, uh, or, you know, and, and, and with him went Ori and Owen and many of our folk, right? As if he were the leader and many decided to join, but instead it's Balin took them, right? All of them. He took Ori and Owen and he took many of our folk and they went away south. Um, Balin gets the lion's share of the blame for this. This is Balin's expedition. And it does lead me to think, as we were sort of talking about before, that it is possible that um, the, basically Glowen is sort of blaming Balin, not only, I think, to exculpate his own brother, Owen, um, but to point the fact that if Balin hadn't resolve to go, it wouldn't have happened, right? There would have been unrest. There would have been people who wanted to go. But a major colonization, a major, you know, sectioning off a big chunk of the population only happened because it was Balin, right? Nobody would. I mean, yes, I agree, Tony, that the, uh, you know, the other surviving members of Thorin's company are all significant lords now in Erebor and have their own followings. I'm sure that's true. Um, but it's Balin, right? I mean, there's nobody who is uh, as influential, as senior. I mean, he's just... Remember, he was Thorin's companion when Thorin was a kid, right? He was with Thorin on the mountainside when the dragon attacked. Um, so, I mean, he's... Balin's a big deal. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're right, JJ. <laughs> Bomber has literal underlings. Uh, definitely, definitely true. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Deathman42 is asking, and I think somebody else in Discord had already mentioned this as well. The question about the rings and the, the seven rings of power. Um, Glowen isn't saying anything about that, right? Um, <clears throat> but I think that that's part of the temptation here, too. Um, I think the desire to find one of the seven... We're going to learn that the desire for one of the seven rings is explicitly part of it, and I can't believe that that wasn't part of the whispers. Um, so yes, I do think that that's a part of what's going on there. Um, we'll get to that again soon. And this one actually fairly soon, uh, not in years, weeks, not years before we get to that one. Okay. Um, let's do at least one more. Yeah. Before my vo voice goes entirely. That was nigh on 30 years ago, 
For a while we had news, and it seemed good. Messages reported that Moria had been entered, and a great work begun there. Then there was silence, and no word has ever come from Moria since. Then about a year ago, a messenger came to Dan, but not from Moria, from Mordor, a horseman in the night who called Dan to his gate. The Lord Sauron the Great, so he said, wished for our friendship. Rings he would give for it, such as he gave of old. And he asked urgently concerning hobbits, of what kind they were, and where they dwelt. For Sauron knows, said he, that one of these was known to you on a time. At this we were greatly troubled, and we gave no answer. And then his fell voice was lowered, and he would have sweetened it if he could. As a small token only of your friendship, Sauron asks this, he said, that you should find this thief, such was his word, and get from him, willing or no, a little ring, the least of rings that once he stole. It is but a trifle that Sauron fancies, and an earnest of your good will. Find it, and three rings that the dwarf sires possessed of old shall be returned to you, and the realm of Moria shall be yours forever. Find only news of the thief, whether he still lives and where, and you shall have great reward and lasting friendship from the Lord. Refuse, and things will not seem so well. Do you refuse? Okay. All right. Thirty years ago, Balin went. And no word came from Moria since. So, for a few years they had good news, and they haven't heard anything for like 25 years. <clears throat> okay. The Messenger. Some people that I've talked to seem to assume that this is one of the Nazgul who delivers this message. I doubt that very much. I don't think this is one of the Nazgul. This is one of the Nazgul. I kind of like to imagine, yeah, Ambrosius Aureliana, exactly. I kind of like to imagine this is the mouth of Sauron who's doing this. The same dude who's going to come out and uh, do the parley at the Black Gate uh, was sent up to the gate of, uh, of, of, of Erebor. That would be, I mean, we don't have any definitive reason to think it was certainly him, but I certainly don't think it's the, it's one of the Nazgul. Um, yeah, Tony says this is his tone. I agree. Tony, even the summoning of Dan to his gates, right? Kind of had, doesn't that kind of have the mouth of Sauron's fingerprints on it? I think so. Um, yeah, <laughs> Mike says, I want to know everything about the mouth of Sauron, so I, I want it to be him. Yeah, exactly, Veronica. He's Sauron's herald. This is kind of his job, right? What else is he doing? So, um, yeah, yeah, he would have sweetened it if he could. So, JJ, you're right. He's unable to sweeten his words. And that also, uh, uh, that also, uh, 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 fits the mouth, right? Um, yeah. Um, you know, the life, it, I'm sure he was also, I'm sure he was busy, right? I'm sure that the mouth of Sauron has had a busy 
couple decades, right? Um, as he would have, you know, human kingdoms out to the east and south to be sent to, you know, he probably just got back from, uh, you know, from near Harad, you know, on a trip down there, and now he's being sent up to Erebor. I mean, I'm sure this guy is just absolutely racking up, uh, you know, the, the, the frequent trotter miles on his horse, but still, I, I, I think it could very well be him. Um, uh, Fourth Dauntless says any reason to think the mouth of Sauron is unique. <laughs> Maybe Sauron has several mouths and speaks out of both sides of all of them. You know, when we, <laughs> when it comes to thinking of the mouth as a person, I really don't want to think about Sauron speaking out of both sides of him. Uh, but I, I hear, I hear what you're saying. It is quite, I'm sure he has more than one herald that he sends out, but the mouth of Sauron definitely, um, definitely has, uh, it, it, he, I think he's definitely unique in the sense that he, he, remember he, the implication is that he is going to be set up as the lieutenant, um, who is going to rule over the West. Uh, so he certainly anyway, seems to have fairly high opinion of himself and his status in Sauron's court. So I don't think that he's just like ye old Herald who is like all the other Heralds in Sauron's, uh, court over there. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, all right. So, okay. Sorry. One quick question about Moria. Um, someone was asking, and I'm sorry, I keep saying someone was, I keep seeing comments and they get swept downstream. So I remember them, but I don't always remember who said them. Um, uh, somebody was asking, wouldn't they send a messenger? You know, I don't know that they would, actually. Um, remember, this is Dan. This is, like, the guy who has seen inside Moria, who did not want them to go in the first place, who did not give leave willingly, undoubtedly, because he was pretty darn confident. I mean, he was doubtless, like, throwing their funerals as soon as they'd left, right? Because he, I'm sure Dan felt fairly confident that this was not going to pan out. Right. And so he is not going to throw no sense throwing good dwarves after bad. Exactly. I can't imagine Dan sending a bunch of messengers down. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yep. Um, no sense throwing good dwarves after bad. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I just find that very funny for some reason. Anyway, exactly. Yeah. So I don't think Dan is going to be sending many messengers. Um, yeah. And it is a long way. I mean, as you say, Fourth Dauntless, even if Moria is totally, you know, fine, uh, the risk to messengers along that long road between Erebor and Moria would be considerable. Um, so yes, that would take a lot. Um, Yeah. Um, Balin did send messengers, right? They did receive messengers from Moria for a while. But uh, not for a long time. Um, okay. Um, but back to our horsemen. <clears throat> he calls Dan to his gate. He refuses to enter Erebor. And he is speaking explicitly on behalf of Lord Sauron the Great, which presumably is what he feels gives him the authority to summon the king of Erebor 
to his own gate. Right. In the night, what's more, right? Let's drag him out of bed and then bring him to the gate so that he can talk to me, right? Um, Sauron the Great wished for friendship. Rings he would give for it such as he gave of old. And then he's asking about... Uh, hobbits. Right. Um, now, ooh, that is an excellent question, JJ. Does he use the name Sauron? Yep. I mean, that's what that's what Glowen suggests. Um, <laughs> Lalite says, take your leader to me. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much what he says. In his PJs, absolutely. Um, it is possible, Cecilia, that the dwarf messengers will not allow um, the dude in, right? And so he says to them something along the lines of, if you will not let me in to speak to your king, then bring your king out to me. That is possible. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, so I have to say, those of you who are asking, does he actually say Sauron, are doubtless remembering the uh, time when Aragorn says that Sauron does not allow his name to be spelt or spoken. But I gotta tell you, apart from when Aragorn says that, if Aragorn hadn't said that, we would have precious little evidence to support that. Right? Um, seriously. I mean, we don't... I don't want to go so far as to say that that claim by Aragorn is totally unsubstantiated, but it receives small evidence from the rest of the text. Uh, and you can find this is one of several examples um, that you can find where that seems to be untrue. Um, you're right, Konal, he is called he who must not be named, but that's by his enemies in Gondor. That has nothing to do with Sauron giving permission. Right? His... Enemies do that to, like, slight him, basically, and because they fear him, um, but not, uh, but that has nothing to do with his prohibition. Um, the orcs don't, we don't have any evidence of the orcs naming him, but then again, we don't hear that much orcish conversation, uh, to be sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Eric Crouch was just asking, how do the dwarves not choose to check on, you know, five to 25% of their population for 25 years? It feels like they just turned their back. Well, no, I think they mourned them, basically. I mean, I, 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 I think that, again, I think that, you know, Dan was, already starting to carve tombstones for them as soon as they walked out the gate. I mean, I, he did not give leave willingly, not because he grudged their leaving, but because he was certain they would die. And they did. 
Um, so when they stop, when they stop hearing from them, he, um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's how I read that. Not as, you know, coldness on their part, but just, I mean, it's just, it's just tragedy. Um, uh, and, you know, he warned them and they got what they asked for. You know, it's, um, it's hard. But anyway, um, Yeah, good. Sarah points out that Glowin even clarifies that Lord Sauron the Great is as he said, rather than as the dwarves would refer to him. Um, yes. Lord Sauron the Great, so he said. Exactly. He emphasized that those are the precise words that the messenger used. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yep. Um. Arden Cran asks, why does Sauron think anyone will trust him at this point? Aren't all his old nice guy disguises burned at this point? Yes. Yes. Burned and or drowned, Angrist, as you say. Um, absolutely. Um, notice he doesn't say the Lord Sauron the kind, right? Lord Sauron the benevolent. Lord, he doesn't say that. He calls him Lord Sauron the Great. Right. Um, the big boss man with the huge armies down south would like your friendship. Right. That's, uh, that's what he leads with. Right. He doesn't expect them to think that Sauron's a, a nice guy. He expects them to acknowledge that Sauron is really powerful. Exactly. It is much more of a power play than an offer from an equal. Yep. It is exactly Tony. This is more, he is giving them something which is much closer to a Godfather style offer they can't refuse than otherwise. Yeah. He's not trying to butter them up. He's threatening them. And he's going to get on to explicit threats by the end. Um, both explicit and implicit. Um, we can see, we know, of course, from Gandalf's story, <clears throat> we already know why this is happening, right? This messenger has been sent. The mouth of Sauron, as I'm still going to assume, this is the mouth of Sauron. The mouth of Sauron was sent north as soon as they got the, they tortured the information out of Gollum, right? They've captured Gollum. They've gotten the information about Baggins and the Shire. And what do they do, right? Brainstorm. Okay. He knows. Gollum knows that Bilbo, right after he got the ring, went to Erebor, right? Okay, <clears throat> that's where we start, right? Rather than just, let's head west and start asking anybody we meet, hey, ever heard of uh, a place called Shire, right? Know anybody named Baggins, right? We're just going to go up and down the continent asking random people at homesteads if they've ever heard of Baggins or the Shire. That's plan B. Plan A is, let's go to the last place we know for a fact he was heading, and see, um, uh, see what happened there. <laughs> exactly. Gilgunther is saying, you've got a lovely dwarf hold here. It would be a shame if anything were to happen to it. Absolutely. That's, that's kind of the message here. Um, yes, the life Gollum does know that he did get as far as Erebor. Um, remember, uh, Gandalf said that he, he, he did get to Dale. And he heard about the events and what happened there. And then he was headed back. 
he tried to go out back towards the Shire when he was captured in Mirkwood. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yes, Tony, I agree. This has to be right after they let Gollum go. Yes, yes. Um, Aragorn probably has Gollum in captivity, like, as the mouth of Sauron is knocking on the gates of Erebor here. Absolutely. <coughs> Good. <clears throat> okay. Um, his fell voice was lowered and he would have sweetened it if he could. So he's gonna, he's gonna start with a carrot here, right? As a small token of your friendship, he asks that you should find this thief. So notice the first thing he says is, uh, well, now he's already said rings he would give for it, such as he gave of old, right? For what? For their friendship. He starts off saying, Sauron would like your, fr Sauron, like the Godfather, believes in friendship, right? Sauron would like your friendship. So if you become friends with us, right, you know, this, the, uh, you know, uh, one day and that day may never come, he'll ask you for a favor. He believes in friendship and he says, to give, to win your friendship, Sauron would, would, would offer you rings, plural, rings, such as he gave of old, right? Okay, so that so that's the the very first promise. Okay, uh, this is what Sauron's friendship means. Explicitly, he will give you things that you really value. Implicitly, he will not beat you up, right? Uh, he is Lord Sauron the Great, after all, right? Um, how do they? What does friendship with Sauron look like, right? How do they? Uh, um, <clears throat> how do they demonstrate their friendship to Sauron? Well, that's very simple, right? Um, there's a thief, right? If you find this thief and get from him, willing or no, a little ring, the least of rings that once he stole. Okay. Um, so... See, Evil Dr. Cannon asks, what do the dwarves know about the rings of power, and would an offer of them be appealing? Yes, they would. Remember, although the dwarves are always secretive, there are still members... that There are multiple dwarves present who were alive and knew Thror and Thrain. Um, Thror... That Thror had the dwarf ring was known to the others of the Longbeards, at least. Um, so, yes, the Dwarvish Ring of Power, the Dwarvish Rings of Power, that's, that's a thing that they know about. Um, and yes, they definitely valued it. Um, okay, so... That he would characterize them as a thief to say, like, okay, look, this this guy, he stole something. It didn't belong to him. This was a, tr a trifle that Sauron fancies, right? Um, he says, okay, perform this one small task. That's all you have to do, right? To show your friendship, all you have to do is there was this guy. He was a thief. He stole something that belonged to Sauron. Find it and get it back. And you'll be friends.
Then he immediately contradicts himself. It is but a trifle, and an earnest of your goodwill. It doesn't really mean anything. It's not that this ring is important in any way, independently. No, it's not that important. But in exchange for it, Sauron is offering three rings that the dwarf sires possessed of old and the realm of Moria. Well, okay, if that's the price of the ring, that's actually a fairly high value, right? It kind of sounds to me like the mouth of Sauron is way overplaying his hand here, right? Um, yeah, JJ says Sauron does not have a good poker face. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, um, anyway, it's a lot of friendship, right? That is a lot of friendship. Um, <laughs> it's apparently much more, it has a very great deal of sentimental value, right? Um, I, um, <laughs> his poker face got drowned. Exactly. Yeah. It was one of the consequences. Um, yeah. And, uh, it's great. You know, Luke points out that dwarves aren't exactly known for being able to say no to stuff. Right. Um, so this, uh, you know, and also they've got a, they've got a good nose for a bargain. Right. Remember that the dwarves in their origins in Tolkien's world were merchants before they were smiths. Right. So, um, dwarves always have a pretty shrewd idea, uh, of the power of money. So this is a, I mean, bargain, right? I mean, no question. They are be making out like bandits here. Uh, it's, uh, um, it's a big deal. Um, Fort Dauntless says, this is very unlike Sauron. He's normally quite subtle and cunning. I wonder if he's already worried that one of the wise is going to find the ring and realize what it is. Possibly, though, if he is worried about that, making an offer like this is hardly going to throw them off the scent, I have to tell you. Um, it is possible, Tony, that this is the mouth of Sauron screwing this up. Um... It is possible that, that it's the mouth who is unsubtle, as Mike says. Maybe Sauron's instructions were like, okay, negotiate with the dwarves. Go as high as three rings of power in Moria, right? And the mouth is just like, I'm leading with that, right? And, you know, and Sauron is like, would be face palming back home. Um, but, you know, Rokoko, I tend to agree with you. Uh, she says, I really think he assumed the dwarves would go for the deal. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, um, yeah, now, Trifle, that's a really good point, too. Um, he, uh, he does want to motivate them. Um, does he want one of the wise to find it? Well, I mean, no, I don't think he does, because again, there are those among the wise who could use it against him. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, evil might win in the end as they would set themselves up as a dark lord in his place. But the, in his place is the point. Right. He personally would lose out if somebody like Gandalf or Galadriel or Elrond claimed the ring for themselves and came and deposed him. Um, 
you know, darkness might in the end fall over Middle Earth, but that would be small consolation to Sauron, who would have been deposed along the way. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, exactly. He doesn't want evil in general to win. He wants himself to win. He's not, uh, he's not in it, you know, for the greater evil, right? He's, uh, he's in it for himself. Um, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're right, Trifle. He does not need to worry about Dan claiming it personally. I don't think he would be worried about that. Um, okay. But anyway, coming back, fourth dollar to the point that you were making, because it bothers me too. It is p- about the unsubtlety, the relative unsubtlety, uh, of, uh, of this, of this offer here. That's why I called this slide mixed messages, because it certainly seems like a pretty big mi- mixed message. Here's a small token of your friendship that you could do, and, uh, for it, we will give you everything you could ever possibly desire. Um, let's think of this instead. Try to forget everything you know about Rings of Power, right? Or rather, I mean, maybe you can remember what you know about Dwarvish Rings of Power, um, but forget everything else, right? Um, this is Lord Sauron the Great, right? Um, there is, of course, another message that he could be trying to send here, right? Um, that is to say, do this trifle for me. And I'll do this trifle for you. Give you three rings of power. And Moria. Why? Because it ain't no thing. Right? I mean, yeah. I'm sure you'd like those things. Right? But this is Lord Sauron the Great we're talking about. I mean, come on. The dude literally makes those things back in his workshop. Rings of power. Right? Whatever. It's no big deal. And hey, like, isn't he the one spreading whispers about the wider world? Right? Yeah, Moria, whatever. Yeah, it's no big deal, right? Lord Sauron the Great, he's got, like, a portfolio of properties like this, right? I mean, come on, it's not even his most valuable real estate that he has to give away. Um, uh, yeah, like, it's, uh, so, so, yeah, like, that, this thing, which is to you, like, beyond your wildest dreams, you know, which is like more than the fulfillment of any individual dwarvish wish, right? It's like, this is like couch change to to Lord Sauron the Great, right? Um, so, um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be, um, it'll be totally, totally fine. Um, good, JJ, yes, he also says rings such as he gave of old, right? Um, rings he would give for it, such as he gave of old. Yes, that does imply not just the same rings. He's not just re-gifting the rings, right? He's, what, upgrade him? Exactly. These are Dwarf Rings 2.0, right? Wait till you see, wait till you see the new specs on these babies, right? Sauron, he's like, the, he's producing more, right? And where those three rings came from, there could be more coming, Right? I mean, we got the assembly line humming b- back again down here in Mordor, right? Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, 
<laughs> Amethorn says the the two point rings are going to be buggy. They should probably hold out for the rings two point one. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, now I do agree. Let's see who was. Um, uh, yes, fourth onwards. Yes, I agree. If they buy the idea that Moria is just one of the little, you know, pieces of real estate he's got in his portfolio and it's no big deal, that's a lie. Because it's the only place in the world where Mithril can be mined and we know that Sauron values Mithril. Um, so they'll see through that lie. But again, I do think, um, I do think that Sauron expects them to take this offer. Also, remember the whole, you know, as we said before, he's not fooling anybody, right? He's not attempting to come in and be like, hey, it's your old buddy Sauron. I'm back. I know I've been away for a while, but we're still good, right? We can still be friends. We were friends before, right? Weren't we friends before? Anyway, well, anyway, bygones. We can be friends now, right? That's not his line, right? His line is, I am Lord Sauron the Great implied I could crush you if I want to, but hey, I'm not in the crushing business, right? Instead, I am willing to be your powerful new friend, right? And here I can provide you pretty much anything, everything that you ever wanted, right? And he expects by appealing to their greed, and this is a huge appeal to their greed, right? Um, this is not, he's not just putting this as a price on their friendship, or, or, or a price on the ring, he's putting it as the consequence of their friendship being friends with me, right? If you will work with me. Now, did we have disagreements in the past? Yeah, whatever, right? But here's what's in it for you, if you work with me now. I mean, I bet you there are other kings of other kingdoms with whom this worked in the East and South, right? I doubt Sauron was always on the best of terms with every single kingdom and monarch out in the East and down in the South, right? And Sauron knows, JJ, as you say, that dwarves are not heroes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, under what authority can Sauron offer Moria? Um, uh, uh, conquest? <clears throat> Because the orcs there work for him, or will, if he bestirs himself. Um, yeah, but again, <laughs> what are they going to vet his claim? Right? I mean, they know that Khazad-dûm is under evil control, right? They know that orcs live there. They know that he's the big evil dude who also is in charge of orcs. Seems legit, right? Hey, you know, for him to say, like, it is totally in my gift. I'll hook you up, right? Do they have any reason to think that's not true? Right? Um, I mean, nameless fear, right? Who is the nameless fear? I don't know. Does he work for this guy? Might do, right? In fact, one could even suspect that Sauron is explicitly implying that, right? I, uh... <clears throat> I have a working relationship with the nameless fear below Hazadum, right? I understand there were some issues with the property before, but I can solve those problems for you, right? 
Yeah, again, it's uh, it's again like a mafia thing, right? Hey, were you having some labor problems before? I think I can settle your issues with the union, right? I think you won't have any more labor problems if we agree to establish terms of friendship between us, right? That's kind of like the same deal that he seems to be at least implicitly offering, right? Um, so um, so yeah, that that all. And again, that that. It seems quite plausible, right? I don't know why the dwarves would necessarily question that. Now, what actually is or would be the relationship between the Balrog of Moria and Sauron? That is an entirely different and very interesting question. Um, I would, uh, I would love to hear like a conference call. Um, here's, uh, a conference call between Sauron, the Balrog of Moria, and Smaug back in the day, right? As Sauron is kind of putting some propositions to them, right? Let's work together. Um, that would be an interesting conversation, wouldn't it? Um, and I literally, I'm not 100% sure how any of those conversations would go, uh, and how, and what those relationships would, would look like. Um, yeah, uh, okay, uh, yeah, like, who would win, you know, if Balrog and, and the, the Balrog and Sauron were, uh, um, were in a, you know, arm wrestling match, I'm not really sure, um, <laughs> Tormarthen says, okay, but how many ponies do I get to eat? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, don't know. Don't know. I, um, like I said, I really, I really don't know how things would go between, uh, between Sauron and the Balrog, but you know who certainly doesn't know? Dan, that's who, right? The dwarves would, again, to them, would be totally, totally plausible. Um, we'll come back to this later on. The Balrog question. We haven't gotten to that. We'll spend some time, I'm sure, talking about the identification of the Balrog. But more on this later. The point is, this is certainly, I think, a perfectly plausible offer slash promise to give to the dwarves here. Um, okay. Uh, find only news of the thief, whether he still lives and where, and you shall have great reward and lasting friendship from the Lord. Refuse, and things will not seem so well. Do you refuse? That last question is awesome, right? Um, so again, this is the way in which I think that this is a subtle offer from Sauron. Um, Again, to say that he seems to be kind of, uh, giving away his hand and how much he values this ring. Yes, that certainly seems to be, uh, it is very easy to read the passage that way. But again, it's dwarves he's talking to, right? He's making a very strong appeal. He's gonna need to offer them something. I mean, if they're gonna be friends with him, if the dwarves of air, if the longbeards are gonna be like, Oh yeah, Sauron, sure. That'll be fine. I'm sure we can work something out. Yeah, let's be friends. It's gonna take a lot. Right. He's not going to come to them and be like, so, uh, I can, 
give you a discounted rate of trade or something. I mean, he's not, there's like not a small offer he's going to be able to give to them. That's going to make them think about actually <clears throat> forming an alliance with him. Um, but, uh, but the end I really love. Do you refuse? There are lots of ways in which that could be asked. Right. Are you going to show friendship or not? Right. If, if you ask the question negatively in that way, like, are you not going to do this? It's very different from saying, are you going to refuse to do this? Right. What it emphasizes is the decision that you make is a positive decision. Right. The de you are about to make a choice, my friend, and that choice will have serious consequences one way or the other. And notice, right, notice that one of the other consequences, I think, of the lavish promises for the friendship, right, if you choose to help, if you choose to show friendship, I will give you all of this stuff. If you refuse friendship, well, I'm not going to say what's going to happen, right? But presumably, what's going to come from the other side is going to be commensurately bad, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, asking, so again, just asking, do you refuse? Because Inaction is not an option, right? Doing nothing, not an option. You are either, uh, doing this action, which, uh, shows your friendship, right? You're either showing friendship to, to Sauron or you are refusing to show friendship to Sauron, right? Um, that's it. Those are the only two. Those are the only two options. You will be doing one of those two things. You can't just say, I'm going to do my own thing, right? I'm not going to act at this time. No, in doing that, you will have refused, right? Um, he's drawing a very clear line. There is no neutral stance. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> yes. Um Circle yes or no. Exactly. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> yes. And for Thonless, I agree with you that whether that was the intention or not, I think that that is the, the effect. For Thonless says, it's, uh, I wonder if the extravagance of the earlier promise was intended only to throw this choice into stark relief. If you refuse under such generous terms, you are entirely unreasonable and will deserve what you get. Right. I'm promising you for a really small thing. I'm making these massive promises, right? You'll get all of this. But if you refuse to be helped, if you refuse the amazingly generous friendship that Sauron is offering you, well, okay. Then you will get, then things will not seem so well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Though that phrase is also very vague. Things will not seem so well. 
that is about the gentlest way that that threat could possibly be, uh, gentlest and vaguest way, right? Um, uh, that, uh, that any of them could, uh, that, that, that he could have expressed this. And I agree, Mike, seem, uh, is a pretty heavy word in the Tolkien lexicon. Yes, yes. Um, <clears throat> why seem? <laughs> why doesn't he promise actual unwellness, Lilith? Um, again, I think it's, it's a way to make it, um, ex- especially ominous because especially vague, right? I mean, if he, if he just, if he doesn't say that, if he says, refuse and things will not be so well. Right. Um, even that is more concrete than things will not seem so well. Um, it, it's just like maximum vagueness, right? You're gonna feel like things aren't awesome <laughs> at all <laughs> if you refuse. Um, it is a much more subtle threat. Um, I mean, that to me, that's like that, that sentence. Both the construction, making them make a concrete negative choice, and that sentence, refuse and things will not seem so well, um, that's very subtle. Which is one of the reasons why I think what happened before, the offer that is made before, is not necessarily just a fumbling lack of subtlety. Um, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like when a glance seems to pierce your heart. Yeah, it'll be a little bit like that. Yeah. Yep. Good. Um, I do agree, Ambrosius Aurelianus, that um, with the urgency of the hunt for the ring that's going on right now in the dis- in the realization and discovery that it has been found and is now roaming around in the world and has been for several decades um the idea that Sauron says would say to the mouth uh let's overwhelm them with our initial offer right let's get action on this pronto seems to me pretty plausible actually yeah um and again, as several of you have said, as Tony was just echoing again, I, I, I do. It seems very likely that they fully expect the dwarves to come around. So let's not make any doubtful offer. You know, let's again, let's not offer him just like, you know, a bunch of gold or something like that. Something that maybe he would say no to. Surely, no dwarf king is going to say no to three rings of power and Moria. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. But Moraz, can someone communicate with the mouth at a distance? We have no evidence he can do any such thing. I've seen no reason to think that Sauron could do that. Unless he gives him a palantir, but I don't, I don't think he's got that many to spare. <laughs> Fourth Thoughtless says, uh, the mouth says, I will come back with gold, and Dan says, oh no you won't. Yeah, exactly. Um, Farmer Maggot, Dan Ironfoot, direct parallel. Absolutely. Um, 
good. And yet, Lincoln says, isn't this also, isn't it also possible that this is another instance of Sauron assuming everyone will act like him? Uh, yeah. I mean, pretty much. Yeah. Um, good. Good. Okay. Um, I was, I'm tempted to go on to the next slide, which will finish Dan's, or sorry, not Dan's story, uh, Glowin's story. Um, but, uh, my voice is already in peril and it's getting late. So I think I'm not going to do that. Um, so, um, we will finish that up next decade. Uh, and we'll, uh, uh, we'll see what we can do there. I'm going to do, we'll do a brief field trip tonight. Not a long field trip tonight. I think I still have enough voice to go on with, but not so much. So very much. So, uh, we'll do that, but I am going to stop our text discussion here. Thanks everybody. This is a really fun discussion tonight. I think I learned some, uh, some really fun things about this situation at Erebor that I hadn't, uh, uh, thought about before. Uh, but thanks. We will be back. I don't even know the date. What is it? The second January 2nd, I think is the date that we'd be back again. No Tuesday. It'll be the seventh. Yeah. It'll be the seventh. Okay. Right. Second is Thursday. So it is absolutely right. January 7th will be the date of our next meeting. Uh, after tonight. So happy holidays to everybody. If I don't see you before then, of course, tomorrow night we have the, uh, final session of our discussion of a wizard of Earthsea. Um, so please do come to that if you, uh, if you've been following along there. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, uh, in any case, and we'll do the field trip now too. So but I'll say good night to the folks on Twitter and feel free to join us. Uh, at uh, uh, twitch.tv slash signamu for our field trip. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Couldn't get it shut off. All right, there we go. Excellent. So, Valora is not able to join me tonight. She's even sicker than I am. Uh, so... Uh, she couldn't make it. But we're going to head back to, uh, Thorin's Gate is where we're going, where we're headed back to tonight. Uh, which is good because we're on Honor, which means Narnian is comparatively low level, though they did do the earlier jump ups so that he got up to level 50, at least. So he's not coming in as like a level 5, at least. So at least I don't have to worry about getting attacked by the fauna over there by Thorin's Gate. Okay. So the primary question that I was wanting to uh, that I am still wanting to get answers to as we are um, looking at Thorin's Gate is are we to understand that the Thorin's Gate um, settlement What can I do for you? is original 
to the Longbeards? Um, or are they building again on top of a previous Dowerhand settlement? The primary, I mean, so far, everything seems to suggest, yes, it is a, we have not seen evidence of anything, um, dower handy here. What do you um, want? And even the oldest things, like that monumental sculpture of Thorin on the hill that we were looking at, <clears throat> looks old. Older than most everything that we've seen. And we've had some confirmation that that is Thorin. So, um, I guess we should wait a minute and see if anyone else shows up. Oh, wait, we wanted to look inside the homesteads. Did we not get to do that? forgot about that. But I want to come up over in this direction, too. Um, anyway, let's head up over here. Because these look like they might be ruins. I know there's, like, mining stuff. See, it's hard with the snow. It, snow makes it difficult. Because what looks like, from a distance, looks like, ser like really weathered stone could really just be stone with a light dusting of snow on it. Man, this looks like a rose window, except made out of, except like in the shape of an enormous millstone. From the outside, this looks like a well, except it's not a well. I don't know what this thing is. Is it some... Is it the foundation stone of a tower that hasn't been built? Is it... Is it... Could be a pool? Could be a hot tub, Lilith. It absolutely could be. A little drain plug in the middle there. Um, yeah, I don't get this. Especially since we've seen no towers like this. Just like round towers. It does look like a giant millstone, and yet so large as to be, what, wholly impractical. I'm going to go with hot tub. That seems to me most likely. That's right, we got to the gates of the homestead and didn't go in. Let's see if we can go in there and look around, but we'll go there in a moment. Okay. Man, especially when it's cold and snowy here everywhere else. A nice big communal hot tub like that would be just the thing. I'm looking... What I'm looking around for? I'm looking around for ruins. Evidence of previous structures, and I'm not seeing any. That island doesn't look like it has anything on it. Run out across the ice here. Couldn't tell what this was. Oh, it's just ice. It's just like a frozen little stream and waterfall down over those rocks. Okay, sure. Okay. 
No sign of any construction. So let's head over <clears throat> to this like industrial construction zone that we saw from a distance. And then from there we'll head over to the uh, to the, what do you call them, the homesteads. And look around for a little bit, see what we can see there. Now, what's happening here? Quarrying? Building? Looks like we're building towers over there. Of course, we've got goblins messing about. I guess from the fact that... Nope, they've forgotten to put a door. Or yet another dwarf door, which is not meant to be seen when shut. The fact that this tower is... You know, it breaks off in, in, in these neatly laid block things, right? Um, suggests that this is partially built, not ruinous. It would have broken off a little bit more unevenly than that, uh, presumably. Uh, so I take it that this is a, this is under construction, but ooh. What is this set back against the wall? Is this an armory? This is an armory. Right, I'd forgotten about this place. Looks all dour... Not all dour handy. All long-beardish. The architecture and style. And we've got... Um, Freren statues. Little mini Freren statues off on the side. Identical to the statue of Freren down in the... Down in the square. Okay. And we've got a very nice door. Is that a window in the middle of it? Interesting. Okay. These shields? They are shields. Wow. These are like real tower shields. Full body tower. I mean, a dwarf. Yeah. So you've got the slits for the dwarves to look out of. You've got the three slits to accommodate three, three different heights of dwarves. Right? So dwarves would stand behind this looking through the little slits um, so they could form a shield wall in the front. That's cool. That's super cool. And yet, just the kind of geometric designs that we've come to expect, especially from long beardish design patterns. More bows than I would have expected to see, but then again, Thorn and company knew how to use bows when Bjorn lent them to them. Okay, and then we've got, right, books and scrolls. Oh, those carvings are interesting. Weird. They look like it's cut off from something else. And then roughs, not rough stone walls. It's smoothed. Yeah, we've got a lot of natural stone walls down here. The classic long beardish 
squared arch there. Whose structural integrity I always rather doubt. No offense to the long beards. But, yep, I'm not seeing anything here which looks dour handy. What is this? Oh, it's a rack with... Is that a... What's the word? I've lost the word. The Klingon word. The batach. Yeah, right? That's what it looks like. What's the... The Klingon sword. I've totally lost the word. Batleth! Thank you, Batleth. That's the one. Thank you. It looks like a Batleth, doesn't it? Yeah, Fort Donald was thinking the same thing. It does look like a Batleth. Yeah, sorry, I couldn't. It's been too long since I've watched Star Trek. I couldn't remember. I've, uh... I'm immersed in something else now. Okay. Yep. Okay. I'm say I'm ready to say 100% long beardish. Even the carpet. All right, geometric shapes there. Yeah. Okay. So these ugly towers. I mean, right? It's not just me. These towers are not attractive. These new ones. Do you think they're unfinished? But I don't know. I think these are meant to be just functional. I mean, and they've got those pipes off the sides. So here's what I'm wondering. Since these are under construction currently, um, this area, there does seem to be active construction happening. My question is, are we to understand or are we to wonder or conclude even that the architecture of the dwarves is falling off? That they cannot any longer make work as great as the work of their fathers? I mean, the rest of Thorin's Gate, okay, I can't see any of it from here right now. From where we're standing right now, this just looks like a wasteland of smokestacks and ugly towers and winter trees. And then the profile of King Thorin on the uh, on the side over there is in the hot tub. You can't see the hot tub. In, in the, is this the industrial sector? Is it possible that those are just yeah, like smokestacks or something? That they have furnaces underneath, and they've got. Cause, I mean, they do have the chimney pipes coming out of them, like little cacti branches, and these big, huge wheels. Right? Big, enormous cog wheel or mill wheel. Looks like a water wheel, actually. Weirdly. Not sure what's going on with that. Is it a digger? Yes! Look at the teeth on that. That's a digger tool. Right? So you somehow turn the cranks and it turns the big wheel and the big wheel grinds the stone of some way. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, there could, this could just be furnaces and everything. But again, 
so what's the point? It looked like a construction site. Maybe what's being constructed are the industrial works, but see, still, here's the thing. The idea that you're going to build something for function instead of form, right? We're just building industrial works, so we're not going to make them look beautiful. That's a modern viewpoint. Like, that's what Tolkien was always complaining about. Like, when Tolkien gripes about how ugly architecture is nowadays, it's not just a a taste thing. I mean, it is a taste thing, but it's more than that. What he chiefly complained of was the fact that everything is now, like, by now I mean everything from the, like you know, 40s and onwards, especially in the post-war era, post-World War II era, um, that everything was the pride that a craftsman took in his work um, had gone, right? That, you know, normally, like, when a man made a chair, like, he was just making a chair for people to sit on, but, you know, he was handcrafting a chair, and the chair was the best and most beautiful thing that he could make, right? So it didn't matter if it was just designed to be functional. Like, um, and increasingly, he, you know, Tolkien was complaining about how increasingly in the modern world things just get mass produced because they'll be, you know, because it is believed that they will be useful. Although, of course, he complained that that was a lie too, that these things didn't last longer than the old stuff. Um, but that there was no effort whatsoever to make it attractive. So this sort of consent to ugly but functional things. Tolkien himself considered a disease of the modern world. Exactly, Lilith. Replacing the work of individual craftsmen with an assembly line. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so, again, I come back to the question of, are we to understand that the dwarves of this region are falling off? Like, is this a sort of decline by them? This whole place is pretty foul. I mean, look at this pile of refuse we're standing next to. What is this, like, slag? Basically? These are the slag heaps of... Hey, more hot tubs, though! Excellent. Okay, so... With that one exception, with the exception of the abundance of hot tubs... Uh... Right, see, now, Tim, I could see blaming the dower hands for this. But I don't see any justification for it. All we see are goblins around here, but the goblins didn't do this. They've taken it over. But these aren't goblin makings, are they? Okay, so the slag heaps, these are dower hands? Or from the dower hands? Okay, I don't even see any of them, though. Are the goblins kicked them out? Okay, in the intro, the longbeards were shown to be cleaning that up. Okay. This. Slag heaps. Okay. So, what we're seeing here, then... So, this is dower hand work. This whole nasty area over here is dower hand work. Okay. But I this is not goblin work. At least it doesn't fit with anything the goblins have made that we've seen in Lotro. And you can tell because of the squared off timbers. Right? 
this is not what this, these are not goblin scaffolds and ramps and things. They make them with uncut logs or just pointy logs. We'll cut some more of those red things that I still don't understand. It's a fire, a winged bird. It's all over the place, all the wood. I really want to see it without the snow. I think it's fire. Because, I mean, look at the contrast. Look at the contrast between the beautiful working on this building over here and the entirely unadorned tower here. No carving. No ornamentation of any kind. Just this, like, ugly... What, like bronze or something? Which is the same color as the stovepipes sticking out? Yeah, so if... But again, this isn't evidence that dower hands lived here before. This is what the dower hands were recently doing. This is new dower hand construction. Again, it's still underway. And again, look at the sharp contrast between this stuff and the long beardy stuff over here. Okay, let's pop in to the homesteads and look about briefly. Um, oh yeah. Gosh, I don't even remember which one. Which one was, uh, which one was, is the Mythgard house in? I don't even remember. I haven't come in from the gates in a long time. I've just used the, uh, Yeah. I still have my travel to my kinship house skill here, but that's how I always get there. I can't even remember. Um, <clears throat> yeah, maybe we should wait, Bilongsmon. I think maybe you're right. Bilongsmon is thinking I should maybe save my voice. Why don't we wait and do the homesteads next time? And that will help me um, also remember which one I'm supposed to go into in order uh, to find the Mythgard house. Um, okay, so we'll do that next time. Yeah, they are pretty big, so we'll look around next time. Okay, so we'll stop here uh, We'll stop here for now, having looked at the ugly stuff uh, tonight, which is a little bit depressing, but that's okay. Um, still no evidence of ancient dower handy construction that we've seen, so okay. All right, so I will end there. Thank you, guys. Uh, sorry for the shorter field trip tonight, but I am going downhill here and should probably stop. I will see some of you tomorrow night for the last uh, Mythgard Academy class on Wizard of Earthsea. Uh, and other than that, I will see you guys in the new year. Thanks, everybody. Good night now. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.